0: Welcome back to another episode of the Equity Matters Podcast. It's your host, I JB3. And it's been a long time since I've applied for a job. And an even longer time since I've had an interview. But I, I had one recently. And I told my wife maybe three or four years ago that the next job that I received I didn't necessarily want to like go out of my way to apply for. I wanted someone to reach out to me and say, hey, Dr. Bell, uh, we were looking at your credentials and we want you to lead this organization. And it didn't quite go that way uh, this time. It was it was an invitation to apply. And I I took the opportunity. I I didn't receive it, but it was a really great experience. So I'm glad that I did it. But it goes to reinforce a lot of the opportunities that we come across are not posted, they're not listed, they're not even, you know, formalized, but in many cases the relationships that you have that will position you for opportunities and for success. You've heard me say countless times that I've got some really great mentors and people who look out for me when it comes to professional development opportunities or when it comes to consulting. And this time was really no different, and so I'm, I'm grateful for the people who said, "Hey, James, this this is coming. Your name is already being tossed around, so just prepare yourself in your documents." Unfortunately, this is not always the case for people who who look like me. And when we start talking about one's social capital and the relationships and assets that they have access to, there's significant gaps and inequities. And when we look further, Um, downstream in that regard the same thing occurs and so you don't have access to the employment opportunities therefore we continue to widen the gap when it comes to something as simple as wages when it comes to promotion when it comes to retention all of these things play a key role but I am grateful because there is someone out there who's looking to reverse those trends And that someone happens to be a classmate and a a colleague, Um, so a fellow Trojan, Dr. Gina Merritt, who has created a social capital platform that is designed to address just this gap. And so without me giving away too much up front, I want to make sure that I introduce you all to Dr. Gina Merritt. Dr. Merritt, could you let the listeners know a little bit about you, maybe where you're from, just something to kick off the conversation.
1: Sure, uh, I grew up in the Bronx, New York, and actually grew up in affordable housing. Uh, went to um, a number of, uh, I guess, institutions like Howard University, the University of Virginia, the Darden School. All of those things helped to shape where I am today. And uh, you know, so I'm an entrepreneur, but I, uh, I basically. Uh, manage a social enterprise that provides affordable housing development as well as uh, economic empowerment services.
0: So we've got a lot to unpack there. Um, I feel like I owe an apology to all of the Hampton grads because I feel like please. anytime I get an HU person, it's Howard. And so <laughs> I got to go out of my way now to find some Hampton people.
1: Uh, can I tell a quick story though about Hampton? So oh, my please do. my um. My grandfather's brother wrote the alma mater to Hampton. So I do have some allegiance. Even though I went to the real HU, (laughs) my family is tied to that
0: HU. So you're telling me that there's little HU dipped in the other HU. Gotcha.
1: Exactly. Gotcha. So
0: let's talk about your social enterprise, right? Can you explain for us what exactly is social capital?
1: Certainly. So social capital is really about the interpersonal network that one can leverage to gain access to resources or opportunity. It's about power and influence that helps one access something of value. And social capital status is usually attained through educational attainment and economic empowerment. Many people say who live in low income or under resourced communities, they lack access to social capital. And that lack of social capital leads to a continuous cycle of unemployment in these these communities. Related to this is the notion of what we call weak social ties. And those are relationships with people that you don't ordinarily deal with. So, you know, not your family or or your close friends from your neighborhood, but people outside of your normal network of relationships. Research shows that they are of greater value than these, say, stronger social ties of your family and friends. For example, I met a young man, Mr. Barnett, in a program for justice-involved individuals. He taught himself how to draft in prison, and that's uh, you know architectural drafting, and when he got out, he taught himself how to draft using a computer-aided design tool. So he was looking for employment and he leveraged his social capital with me. Uh, And so I called a colleague of mine who happens to be the owner of a $20 million architectural firm and told him that he needed to meet Mr. Barnett because I thought he'd be an asset to, to my colleague's firm. And after meeting him and interviewing him, my colleague actually hired him. Uh, In this case, I could vouch for Mr. Barnett because I knew the people running the program and I interviewed Mr. Barnett myself, Uh, but essentially the weak social ties there and the value of my social capital got Mr. Barnett access to that opportunity.
0: In the example that you described, we talked heavily about relationships as a form of social capital, but are there other examples out there?
1: Well, I think that social capital really is, is at least the sort of academic definition is about giving one or leveraging one's relationships to gain access to a resource. Okay. And so that could be, that could be anything that could be um, working with, uh, you know, working with someone at the, say, grocery store who uh, who has a uh, a bank account or a checking account somewhere that gives them or, or doesn't charge them fees. And it could be about leveraging that relationship to learn about new information that will help you uh, get to where you want to go in your life. And so um, you can sort of attach value um, to all relationships, right? It is about... Um, obtaining something of value that you need in your life that helps you move ahead.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. So I know you tend to frame things from your your perspective of employment. Could you talk about how does structural barriers affect social capital?
1: Certainly. It's
0: a two-part two question. Sorry. So that, that's the first part. We'll come around to second.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, uh, I would say the lack of social capital in underserved communities you know, stems from structural racism, discrimination, and ignorance, really, in our employment systems. You know, uh, Black people don't control, Black people or people of color, don't control the economy or the labor markets, and therefore don't control most employment opportunities. Um, and so when, say, for example, someone needs to be hired at any firm, typically employers and hiring managers call their friends, colleagues, you know, people they know. When they call those friends or colleagues, those people don't look like us. Um, and so, you know, you see the results of sort of the structural barriers and the lack of access to opportunities uh, really in all aspects of our life right not just employment, like you said, I mean it's in education it's in healthcare, care um, it's everywhere.
0: And so it sounds like almost like a cycle right, so if I'm going to just use the good old boys club example if john calls bill and say hey bill i need somebody to fill this position and then they call tom tom more than likely looks like the other two named individuals in that that example and so in a way that network continues to grow and then you see individuals of color pushed out of that network even further so not only is it creating a problem it's reinforcing that problem
1: absolutely Mm. and and you know what uh I love to sort of bridge this conversation with affirmative action because, you know, the the um, the majority of, uh, uh, of institutions really have struggled with that notion, right, of affirmative action. But really, you can tie that back to lack of social capital, right? Because if, you know, if you look to the people you know and the people who, again, control our institutions, our government, our economy, you know, Everything they are going to connect with people that look like them, and so you know when it's time to uh, engage people for college or again uh, employment opportunities at any level. I mean, people are going to call the people in their network, and you know, and certainly at the top of the food chain and the people who are in control of these opportunities. Again, we know that they rarely uh, look like us, and so affirmative action, right, which is a you know huge thing really the, the sort of essence of that is lack of social capital. Uh, but of course, we know that ties into racism and discrimination and why, you know, why, why we're not in control of any of these uh, systems or institutions.
0: So for someone who's not necessarily in a decision-making role, right, someone who's literally just trying to enter into the job market, how does this lack of social capital impact them?
1: It is really prevents them from um, having meaningful employment and having a career pathway. It is very hard for a person that doesn't know where the jobs are uh, to to find one and to be able to improve their uh, economic situation. And and so, you know, they're, they're their lifestyle and and the, the lifestyle of their family really um, is impacted. You know, you don't see the growth that others that don't look like us see in their in their lives, right? The, again, it, it is, you know, part of it is employment, but it is sort of everything, uh, you know, everything in one's life, which again includes uh, education, healthcare, all of these systems essentially, Uh, that we use to um, improve our lives. Um, People who don't know about these resources, or at least where the good opportunities are, or the access to resources that would benefit one's life. A lot of folks in these communities just don't have that information. So, you know, again, social capital, you know, part of it, it is this ties back into this strength of weak ties. Part of it is about getting new information into communities that gives them uh, access to uh, these resources that they otherwise would not know about.
0: Let's bring the pandemic in the room out, right? So how has COVID-19 exacerbated or even just impacted unemployment?
1: well it's fascinating again because if you look at the data right before the covid-19 pandemic white americans were unemployed at a three, uh, at a rate of 3.6% um the unemployment rate for uh was 3.3% for asian americans 5.4% for hispanic or latino and 6.6% for black americans and so you know covid-19 obviously has ravaged you know community communities of color in many ways you know people of color are typically the first line of defense right in the healthcare industry many are also frontline workers in many industries and have a greater exposure to the disease so you know there is there was a significant impact in terms of you know obviously people getting sick which then again exacerbates the uh, the unemployment rate and essentially the unemployment rate, sort of on the tail end of COVID, you know, like the end of uh, uh, end of last year, the reporting earlier this year, uh, showed that the unemployment rate at that time, you know, at the first quarter of 2021, essentially was 6.3% for uh, white Americans and 9.8% for black Americans. So it shows you again that the, uh, you know, COVID-19, again, uh, um, just like all, you know, other sort of structural issues with our system has impacted, you know, people of color uh, more than uh, white Americans.
0: So even in the midst of, of COVID, you know, we, we started the program before a pandemic, public health pandemic started, you were situating yourself to address this problem. And so can you tell us a little bit about Project Community Capital?
1: Sure. I mean, Project Community Capital is a social capital platform uh, that connects ready-to-work employment candidates with employers. For those employment candidates who are not ready to work, we connect them to social services, training, and education uh, to help them become ready-to-work. We do this through a collective impact model where we have partners that provide the services our employment candidates need, essentially using a case management system to track them through the employment readiness process. We also utilize technology that allows us to understand where our uh, partner referrals are in our system. And we also share this data that we collect with those partners. So essentially we go into communities we let them know about employment opportunities and we give them access to employers and and opportunities they otherwise would not know about.
0: Do you mind talking us through that employee employment readiness process? What does that look like?
1: Sure. Um, Project Community Capital, before COVID, uh, actually used to go out into uh, communities that we know are challenged to find employment and we know that you know purely based on the data. And we would go to churches and schools, places in the community where it was easy to access for people to come out uh, and meet with us. And we would talk to them about our process, which is really a vetting process that identifies three uh, important criteria that employers consistently say they are looking for in entry level employees. And the reason why we target entry level employees is those are the the hardest to place uh, in these communities that we serve because those folks typically have been unemployed for a long time. And so trying to get them into a position where they can learn and grow and and be put on a career path is what we focus on. And we find that vetting Uh, and looking for people with RTA which stands for reliability trustworthiness and ambition uh, will help an employer uh, get to the point where they are willing to hire somebody and that that person will stay in their uh, job and we really do that around public projects because the our problem has been that or the problem that we're working on is that uh, employers that work on public projects For example, construction projects uh, really struggle to find people with RTA. So they hire people and they last two to three days or two to three weeks in their jobs. And so the community that's intended to benefit from this public investment does not benefit, right? You cannot benefit if a contract say on a project is six months and you only work for two weeks. And it's because the employer hires someone who's not ready to work who actually doesn't meet that three uh, important criteria, and they don't last. Meanwhile, there are people in the communities we serve that can work for six months, that will show up every day on time and execute their jobs responsibly. Contractors just have trouble finding them. So our process is that we go into communities, we tell people about the jobs we have we vet them for that criteria and and the other piece of what we find in the work that we we do in practicing this is that 30 percent of the people that we screen actually have RTA and so the other 70 percent then we connect with social service partners and those social service partners help the person with whatever challenges they have that allow them to get ready to work. Now, I'll give you a quick example. Uh, we will interview somebody, and they, they wind up telling us all kinds of things about themselves, which we appreciate because it really allows us to uh, discern their readiness. Uh, and it's because you know, working with folks that look like the community we're working in allows them to be transparent in the process. And so we had one person, for example, complain that they lost their last job because they called out at least once a week because they had a headache. And so what we believed is that that person probably has a medical condition, right? Perhaps they have hypertension. We know that plagues our community. And so that person should go to a health clinic and get a diagnosis and hopefully change their diet or get medication that would allow them to go to work every day and not call out, right? Because that that then speaks to reliability, right? If you can't, if that person's not gonna show up every day for this construction project to get the work done, then then it's going to cause problems actually for everyone else that tries to get a similar job. You know, part of part of what happens is that uh, these general contractors don't believe that that the folks that they're supposed to hire are right, reliable, trustworthy, and ambitious because they, they have that same problem where they hire the wrong person. So so we ensure that, uh, that the people that we screen that are ready to work get connected with that opportunity and the people that aren't go through a process of getting the services they need so that they can hold a job uh, you know, for the full tenure of a, of a subcontract.
0: And I know in perusing the website and also just listening to you through you know, class, obviously, you describe Project Community Capital as a social capital platform. And so what does this mean for you and also for um, potential employees and employers?
1: Uh, it means that PCC acts as a social capital bridge for people from underserved communities. And the way we do that is in two ways. Uh, One is about bringing new information to a community's network. So again, we go into a community, we tell them about these jobs, we get people to sign up with them, and we act as that bridge between the employer on the construction project who has to fulfill these socioeconomic goals and the person in the community that has no idea that these jobs exist. So that's our, what we call our project level implementation. Then we are now working on action agency level implementation where we are now calling on our social capital network to provide us with jobs that we offer to the general public outside of construction projects. So now we have, now that my friends and family, you know, understand where I'm at with this platform, I'm getting calls off the hook of people looking for employees, and so now we are um, we are about to launch a partnership with a uh, a government agency, essentially where they will they want us to uh, screen their population, which is probably about I don't know how many they'll allow us to to interview, but their population includes fifteen thousand people that are unemployed or at least that don't report any income. So Say half of those people are unemployed or truly unemployed, right? That's still 7,500 people that are part of this government institution that don't have employment. So when my friends call me and say, oh yes, Gina, I have jobs, we'd love you to fill them. That's what I'm working on now. And we call that an agency level implementation. And in that case, I'm using social capital also, which is I'm leveraging my relationships. And then my friends are telling their friends are telling their friends that if you need to hire somebody, you should use PCC.
0: You mentioned this in brief as far as like medical needs, but could you describe how you're working within the system to eliminate inequities for individuals in these low-income communities?
1: Sure. Um, so I am working within a lot of, say, um, government institutions, right? I'm soliciting folks like housing authorities and other government agencies who have access to funding services and people to get them to engage uh, PCC. PCC can help those existing institutions rapidly assess who is ready to work and connect them to employers who we have social capital relationships with. Now, these agencies that are responsible for so many people that are challenged uh, in terms of obtaining and maintaining employment and, again, having access to services, uh, they struggle as institutions to execute this work. And we as a private organization partnering with an institution say like a housing authority who has the dollars and the people we can help leverage uh, partnerships from you know every everything like um like health institutions and Uh, and colleges, for example, universities, and bring them to our collective impact model to help break down some of those barriers to education. We're also partnering, for example, uh, with a bank uh, trying to uh, do financial literacy programs. We are trying to tie in all of the institutions that make our lives what they are and help break down the barriers to access them and to provide uh, equity in all of those respects. Like one of our partners we're negotiating with right now is is a university in Maryland and that university is going to partner with us so that people that are part of the PCC platform that they're not just stuck in a, say, low wage job, an entry-level job, which is our goal to to start them off with, but to put them on a career path means that those folks have to have access to more than just a job, right, in order to truly create or reduce, you know, uh, economic inequality, uh, income inequality, you must put people on a career path and give them access to all kinds of uh, resources. So we're trying to eliminate the inequities and really accessing a variety of resources that anyone of any you know, a higher level education or, or employment easily accesses, right? So for you and I, even though we're people of color and we, we still suffer inequities, they are not as great as people from lower income in terms of accessing resources that they need.
0: Slightly tangential, but cur- I'm curious because I'm, you know, in public health, we're talking about unemployment as a social determinant of health. How often does transportation become a barrier, right? So not having access to reliable transportation, how are you able to, to position PCC to address that?
1: So that's an interesting question. We um, we deal with a lot of barriers, and I would say we address it in two ways. That's part of the reason why we have partners and, and are doing this under a collective impact model. There, have, there are many workforce development agencies out there that this is what they do every day. They eliminate barriers. So we partner with them because they're the ones getting Uh, they're the ones that are nonprofits, and they're getting all the foundation dollars and really the government agency dollars that support those kinds of activities, helping to reduce these employment barriers. We do that uh, sometimes when we're working on a specific project. For example, the project we're working on in Baltimore, uh, there's a few things going on there. One is that it's usually when we're working on a project, we're looking at people that are local. And so the project that we're working on, people from the surrounding neighborhood could actually walk to work, um, you know, or take public transportation because it's that close. That is the whole idea of a project-based implementation. When we get to agency level, it'll be a little different, but even in this project uh, that we're working on, we've done things like, um, uh, for example, we've purchased two weeks worth of clothing for an individual, because they didn't have slacks and and um, collared shirts, right, uh, to go to work in, uh, and so that's an employment barrier. If you get a job and you and you can't show up professionally dressed, then you're going to have a challenge, you know, keeping that job. So. In our project-level implementations, we include in our budget some funds to help people solve that problem. So in some cases, people have cars, but they uh, maybe they, they got a boot on their car. Uh, they haven't been able to re-register their car. We'll pay for those boots to be removed. So we do pay for some of those um, employment barriers uh, to be removed, We we support people with that. And, and the things that we can't do, we have partners in our collective impact A framework that will perform those services.
0: I know folks often talk about, you know, you create solutions that will work itself so that these problems go away. We work ourselves out of work. And I'm I'm taking my very jealous, very uh, selfish approach in this, this question, because I always want to know what role policy plays in things. But say we were to redesign the system. What kind of policies? should we be looking at
1: well that's interesting um that's so interesting i I really just had a conversation really closely aligned with this issue uh today with a subcontractor on a project because the subcontractor asked you know part of the hiring effort and the language around it is that you have to use your, or the subcontractor, general contractor, developer has to use their air quotes, best efforts to hire people from a local community. So policy wise, you know, this causes a lot of challenges, right? Because people, you know, how do you measure what best efforts are and whose measurement is that, right? Um, so if I had my druthers, you know, and I was going to create new policy, I would basically say, selfishly, that that contractors should be required to use a PCC, right? So, and we're, we're the only ones out there that do what we do, but really PCC or some other workforce development model that ensures that people have access to ready workers. Because if it's just about best efforts, I mean, this is what has caused this problem that the best efforts are that when the person when the contractor gets the referral and they last two to three days, all the contractor has to do is check the box and say, I tried, that person only lasted two or three days, right? Again, meanwhile, the worker that could hold the job for six months is out there somewhere. They just can't find, this connection is not happening, right, this social capital connection. And so the policy that's created around public investment and meeting socioeconomic goals it's just about best efforts. And in my mind, that's not good enough. I mean, I think that, you know, last year, for example, HUD um, invested something like, uh, I think it was like $300 billion in in projects. and And for that, you have to use your best efforts to hire people. And that's just not good enough. So I think the policy ought to require that, In order to receive this investment, you have to at least commit to use a platform or organization that has the metrics, the outcomes, documented outcomes of successfully um, Screening and placing people. And that's what best efforts should mean, not just the contractor going out there themselves and trying to figure it out, out, because that's what's caused this problem
0: this reminds me a lot of like various RFP processes and how will you demonstrate equity in the process? And I've just seen that response be terrible, right? Like it's, it's weighted differently. Like it doesn't matter almost. It's just like, we will make sure we recruit a diverse work group. I'm like, what? <laughs> like that, that's not sufficient to addressing the problem.
1: But I I wanted to say to you, though, I mean, I hear you about the uh, about the RFP processes and and what was required, certainly by the government. And again, this is where affirmative action comes in, honestly, because you think about it, if if your requirement is to either hire or contract with people of color and it's about best efforts or if there's little weight to that, then how do you make that right? The policies don't really align, and so we've got to hope that this administration does something about that. I mean, I go after RFPs all the time, so I understand it. And in fact, in my life as a as a real estate developer, what's what's happened is that uh, a lot of a lot of developers actually don't call me because they know that I want to do the work. Mm-hmm. So they put people on their teams just so they can get the points, but those folks aren't actually going to do the work, right? And so, you know, there's all kinds of issues with contracting. We actually, PCC actually does the same work for businesses as it does for people. We connect connect people to opportunities. We got a woman, a major contract on this project that we're working on in Port Covington because we were also responsible for contractor engagement and MBEs and WBEs. So we introduced Some uh, minority companies to the contractor that the contractor didn't know about, and that the minority subcontractor didn't have access to this general contractor. And now I'm I'm almost certain that this contractor now will use them on all of their projects going forward because they're performing well. But it's the same kind of thing. It's like, if you don't have access to those folks, if, you know, y- y- you don't get the, you don't, you don't get the contract. You have to have a relationship, you know, both people with employers and subcontractors with general contractors in order to, uh, to make something happen. And so anyway, that was just an aside, but we were talking about rfps and businesses so i just wanted to let you know that yeah that's also part of project community capital's platform
0: i forgot that you are a real estate developer we could have had a whole different conversation
1: oh well we can do another one in a couple of months
0: (laughs) We gotta 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 do something on real estate it's just it's a whole thing
1: oh it is i mean the oldest old boy network there is before there was anything there was dirt right Dirt plantations, right? Slave labor. Let's get into it because my life is very, very difficult being a Black female developer. Very, very difficult.
0: Oh, yeah. We got to put that together. I got to, maybe I'll do a community practice episode. I'll get some other folks on there. Sounds like fun. So, Dr. Merritt, how do people keep up with you, keep up with Project Community Capital, if they might even be a potential employee looking for work?
1: So thank you for that. Uh, I would love people to email me uh, at gmerit. that's G-M-E-R-R-I-T-T, two R's, two T's, at pccnetwork.net. Uh, that's my email address. They can also check out our website, projectcommunitycapital.net. And, um, you know, we're always looking for uh, people who need jobs as well as, uh, partners that can provide social services and employers who are looking for candidates with RTA. And so, you know, people can follow us and, and connect with us on social media, right? That's at for Instagram, that is at Project Community Capital. Uh, for Twitter, that's at Proj Com Capital. That's at P R O J C O M C A P I T A L. We're also on Facebook, Project Community Capital. And we are on LinkedIn, also Project-Community-Capital.
0: You got all the bases covered. Thank got you. to. <laughs> Anything you want to leave the listeners with tonight, Dr. Merritt?
1: Yes, I would say that I think the, the best thing one can do in terms of developing their social capital is looking to connect to people outside of your network. That's where you're going to get the most value. And so, you know, you go to the library, you see somebody reading a book, talk to them, make a friend, um, talk to your friends and have them introduce you to their friends that you don't hang out with or know. You'll be surprised at how much value those people can bring to your um, to your life, really. you know people can connect you with all kinds of resources that you don't know of. So go outside of your place of comfort, right your close friends and family, make new friends, create new relationships. It will add value to your life.
0: Thank you, Dr. Mayor. might go talk to somebody one day when I'm not afraid to go outside again.
1: Okay. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Big shout out to Dr. Mayor for joining us on Equity Matters. Sometimes I think, you know, I could do a whole year worth of podcast episodes just based on uh, University of Southern California's DSW program, just because of the wealth of grand challenges, the different innovations that students are adopting in order to address them. I think it it could be worthwhile if you've been following us for a while. We've had a few different DSW grads on talking about the things that they're doing. And you all know that I'm one too. So just the way that we tend to look at problems from a practice lens, but also adding that social innovation and social entrepreneur entrepreneurship piece, I think makes a, a significant difference. And it's definitely a value add. And this is not a, a shameless plug for USC because they're not paying me. I am paying Those student loans. So, a few quick things, updates. Um, If you're still here listening with us, a few things I want you to take away. First, I have linked up with the hip hop social worker, Christopher Scott, and Gary Taylor of Everybody Relax podcast to create the Brothers in Social Work Collective. We have our first event this upcoming Saturday. That is gonna be April the 9th, I believe, with how to amplify your voice in the digital space. Really excited for this topic because it's something that I'm actively doing, right? It's something that I've come to perfect over time, just learning from other spaces and saying, hey, if I have an opinion on something or if I've got subject matter expertise on something, I can actually put my voice out into the discourse and people will receive it. I think the podcast is a really good example of that. I also think I've built a a decent social media following independent of the podcast. So there's two things working for me there. The link to register is in my bio. So if you want to sign up, if you're following us on social media, you should be anyway. That's at Equity Matters podcast on Instagram and at Equity Matters PC on Twitter. It's also included in the podcast notes. So if you're listening, follow the links at the bottom, sign up. It's uh, $27. It's a good cause. Please support it. If you've got universities or other groups who are interested in having the Brothers in Social Work Collective, come on, talk about some of the things that we're doing, how we address imposter syndrome, talking about navigating foreign or um, spaces that you're not familiar with, all things that we're equipped to do. We got a few conversations lined up over the next two weeks to work with universities on a, a foray of issues. So, on a on a wide series of issues. So I'm really excited for those conversations to pick up. I also have been teasing for quite some time a report that I have been working on. It has finally been published, and so I want to just give a special shout out to the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, as well as my partners at the Johnson Center for Philanthropy and Grand Valley State University for allowing me to lead the, the writing of the Health Equity Social Determinants Report in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, What I was able to take away from that and what I really appreciate was just being able to add context to data. I think in many cases, we find ourselves limiting the conversation to the statistics and their findings, and we don't do as good of a job talking about the implications. And so they, they really wanted to lead in that way, and they positioned me to lead in that way. So being able to talk about root causes, being able to address the fact that if we see these specific disparities How do they show up and what type of expectations should we have and what are some of the policy implications And better yet what can we do to reverse those disparities so I was really excited to to play a role in that conversation so that report is now out what I'll do is I'll also make that available I'll get it somewhere in some link somewhere but I'm excited because this is my first published piece of work. So seeing my name in APA format, definitely got me a little geeked. I'm not even gonna hold you up. I've got another piece that I'm working on. Can't share too many of the details yet, but know that it should be done sometime this summer. Really excited because it's it's just been a, a whirlwind of opportunity and I'm grateful for that. As, as my friends say, living in abundance, y'all. Um, what else is going on? Our trainings are live with the Cummings Graduate Institute. Those links are in our bio also. Be sure to check those out. What else? I feel like there's there's always something. I've got two consulting opportunities that I'm considering right now, but I'm also trying to be mindful. Um, as many of you know, I am expecting another baby boy in the next two to three weeks. so I want to be mindful of my opportunity to establish a bond up front and be present, also wanna still be present for my other two knuckleheaded kids that I love also dearly, but I wanna make sure that I'm, I'm still providing the things that, that they've gotten used to, so there is that as well. I don't think I've got much beyond that, folks. Sign up for the Brothers in Social Work Collective webinar. It's gonna be a great event, great turnout I'm, I'm anticipating. And until our next episode, you already know, Equity Matters.